The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by author David Sedaris. Beginning in 1994 with Barrel Fever, Sedaris has published one celebrated essay collection after the next. Some of my favorites include Naked, Me Talk Pretty One Day, and Calypso. In honor of his nearly 30-year career, he's won the Third Prize for American Humor and the Jonathan Swift Prize for Satire and Humor. In 2019, he was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His latest book is called Happy Go Lucky and is perhaps his most personal work to date. While making poignant observations about mass shootings, the pandemic, and life in a post-Trump America, a prevailing focus in this book is his late father, Lou Sedaris, who passed away last year at the age of 98. Growing up in Raleigh, North Carolina in the 60s and 70s, the second oldest of six children, David and his father had a contentious relationship. For years, Sedaris has grappled with him on the page through colorful language and funny stories. Lovable Lou was what many readers came to know him as. But something happened to David upon his passing. And not just to David, but David's work itself. Suddenly, all the uproarious tales of his father's indiscretions, his homophobia, his abuse, it no longer felt so funny. In fact, it started to feel 
a little dishonest. And so in many ways, happy-go-lucky is a corrective to that, a way for Sedaris to better understand his father and his relationship to him. You'll hear passages from that book and others throughout this episode. There's actually a lot of reading in this talk, and that's because Sedaris has made a career of telling his story in essays and diary collections in ways no interview ever could. There's a strange contradiction to David, a man who spent a lifetime mining his personal past and yet has a tendency to focus on the present, of observing the world immediately around him, one interaction at a time. The moment Sedaris walked in, he shook my hand and quickly began to talk. First about his day, then about being on tour, before finally landing hey. on the subject oh, of youth. Here's what that sounded like. Good. Welcome. Thanks. Where did I see the ugliest baby? I mean, I couldn't get over how ugly this baby was. And I thought, I mean, even that ugly baby will be able to say when they're 18, they'll be less ugly than they are when they were, you know, 70. It's not a guarantee. Well, you know, after a certain age, like if I were to rob a bank, people said, what did he look like? He was old. That's all they would say. There's nothing that comes after that because you're sort of invisible. I don't know. I think people who try to make an issue out of that, you know, like you're being ageist and stuff like it's always been for young people. The world's always been for young people and you were young yourself. And if you didn't take advantage of it, then, you know, you lost your chance. That's just your own fault. Wow. This is your world. I'm just living it. I feel the opposite. Really? I haven't even asked you a question yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ready to go? Sure. Okay. David Sedaris, pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much, Sam. Over the weekend, there was a shooting in Philadelphia that left three dead and 12 wounded. Another in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where three people were killed, including one struck by a vehicle, leaving 14 injured. Of course, these acts of violence come in the wakes of massacres in Buffalo, Uvalde, and Tulsa. I feel we have to start here in part because to not is to normalize something that I don't think you and I think is normal, but also because the opening chapter of your new book is called Active Shooter. How have you processed this last month in America? Uh, well, I wrote Active Shooter. It was the first thing I wrote after I turned in Calypso, which is my last essay collection. I was with my older sister and we were in Winston-Salem and there was a billboard that advertised a firing range. And she said, we need to go there and shoot guns. And Lisa's not a gun person. We didn't have guns growing up. But anyway, I had to take a safety course. And then they took us to this firing range. And what was interesting to me about it, I suppose, was, you know, the classroom maybe took an hour. And then the firing part, we we're entitled to like 20 minutes worth. And after like two minutes, I was done. It's just not interesting. It's not my thing. I was bored. And then Sandy Hook happened shortly after that. And so I, I wrote this essay about going to the firing range and just sort of about my family's history with guns and stuff. And the book came out last week and people were saying, oh my God, I can't believe how topical this is. And it's like, well, it'll always be topical in the United States because it doesn't change. This woman came last night to get a book signed, and she said, this time is different. I said, no, it's not. You know, if Sandy Hook didn't change things, nothing will. 
19 kids die and then 23. And people are like, well, 23, that's too many. 19 wasn't too many. You talk about a time where you didn't think about mass shootings at the end of this first chapter. I thought maybe we could read from that. Sure. Then came Santa Fe, Texas, where to my family's great shame, the shooter was named Demetrius Pogortsis. We felt the way Korean Americans likely did after Virginia Tech. Oh no, we said, he's one of us. Luckily, the state's lieutenant governor was casting blame on the number of exits and entrances the building had rather than on, say, Greece. The school that I taught at is now holding active shooter drills, Lisa told me. That's where the students, and mine were third graders, turn off the lights and hide in dark corners. She sighed. I'm just glad I got out when I did. When my sister and I were young, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had atomic bomb drills. You'd think our teachers would have led us to shelters 12 stories underground, but instead we were told to crouch beneath our desks. What were we thinking? Kneeling there with our hands atop our heads. Did we believe the bombs might, at the very most, blow off a few ceiling tiles? And that after the attack, we'd return to our homes and find everything just as we had left it. Our parents, our pets, dinner waiting with maybe a little dust on it. Being shot is easier for children to wrap their heads around. If you've got a TV in your house, you know what a gun is and what happens to people when they're hit with bullets. You may not have a clear concept of death, it's permanence, it's refusal to be bargained with, but you know it's bad. For us at the time, with Lisa in the second grade and me in the first, the atomic bomb was just an abstraction. So when I'd see my sister on the school bus at the end of a drill day, in a dress and patent leather shoes, her hair just so, looking far more elegant than she ever would as an adult, I wouldn't feel relieved so much as excited the way kids are when they're released into the world at the end of the day. Oh, to be alive and free. I wanted to write an essay where I began the last sentence with oh, and that seemed a pretty good one to uh, use that tactic in. So you knew the ending before you started? Uh, no, you know what? I always knew that I wanted to do it, and it was like on my list of things to do, and then I thought, perfect, when I came to the last line. That was on your list of things to do? Like, that's on your bucket list? Yeah. That image of you and your sister on the school bus being released into the world at the end of the day. It's one that I can remember growing up, getting off the school bus, where getting off was about the excitement. There was no relief. It was just excitement. And as we're looking back on this last month, I do worry, is that excitement not possible anymore? Well, you know, one thing I kind of worry about, and maybe I'm wrong to worry about this, but with every school shooting, I just feel like it leads to more children being homeschooled. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted my parents to be my teachers, even though there were parts of going to school that were awful for me. In retrospect, I think it kind of had a lot to do with making me who I am, that I had to endure them. Imagining your parents as teachers after what I've read of them. <laughs> well, my mom never graduated from high school. I mean, she knew a lot, but they weren't practical things. You know, she didn't know about science or math or grammar or anything like that. Although she was very good at telling a story. Very good. Yeah. And she sort of coached my brother and my sisters and me. 
she would just say, look, no one's going to listen to the story that you just told. Nobody is going to want to hear that. It's really boring. And you included all these details that don't contribute in any way. And it was good to hear that from somebody. Growing up in Raleigh, this is how you described it in the book Calypso, which I have for you here. In my mind, our house used to be so merry. There was music playing in every room. The phone was always ringing. People in my family laughed more than people in other families. I was as sure of that as I was of anything. Up and down the street, our neighbors left their dinner tables as soon as they could and beat it for the nearest TV. That's what my father did, while the rest of us stayed put with our mother, vying for her attention as the candles burned down. Group therapy, she called it. It was more like a master class. One of us would tell a story about our day, and she'd interject every now and then to give notes. You don't need all that detail about the bedroom, she'd say, or maybe it's best to skip the part about the teacher and just cut to the chase. Was your mother your first editor? Yeah, yeah, she was. And she was a, a good one. I started a couple of years ago asking people when I signed books if they had any jokes. You know, I've heard a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to be hearing a joke for the 10th time from a different person, right? And quite often they pad the joke and they add all these details that just aren't necessary. And because I know the joke and I know where it's going, I just listen to them and I think, wow, how do you not know that you just destroyed that joke? How is it you don't have anybody in your life who would set you straight about a thing like that? To cut out the fluff. Yeah. You know, like I've been with my boyfriend for 31 years and I would never say to him, you're boring me. But I might go, and my sister Amy will say that to me all the time. She'll repeat what I just said in a way that I can hear myself. And I think, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe I was, nobody wants to hear that. So it's good to have people in your life who will just keep you on your toes like that. <laughs> Wasn't there um, a particularly vulgar joke that you kept doing for many years about um, a woman who just turned 40? What was that one? A woman turns 40 and she goes to the baker. Can you guess how old I am? 35. Nope, I am 40. Next, she goes to the butcher. Today is my birthday. Can you guess how old I am? Mm. You're 30 years old. No, sir, I am 40. Up and down the street, she goes, tells everybody. She's so excited. Then she goes to the gas station and she says to the fellow putting gas in her car, she says, can you guess how old I am? And he said, I can guess your birthday and your age, but first you have to let me fondle your breasts for a while. And she says, okay. So he fondles the breast for about 10 minutes and says, you are 40 years old and your birthday is today. She says, oh my God, how did you do that? And he says, I was in line behind you at the butcher shop. <laughs> and some people have had issues with that joke. Is that Really? That's what you, you've said before. You know, people can have an issue with kind of any joke. I mean, it's different too because I didn't write the jokes. You know, I mean, I never try to pass it off as something I've written myself. And I'd be happy to give the person credit. You know, somebody got angry at me, and it wasn't a joke, it was a quote, right? I met this guy at a book signing, and he said, I'm mentally ill, and that keeps me pretty busy, right? And this woman got furious. You had a whole auditorium of people laughing at mental illness, and I said, nobody laughs at I'm mentally ill. Nobody laughs at that. 
the laugh is that keeps me pretty busy. Mm. And the laugh comes from all the people in the audience who have issues and understand the truth of it. If the audience did laugh when I said I'm mentally ill and that was what they laughed at, ha ha, mentally ill people come to see you, I wouldn't have repeated it a second time because that's not the funny part to me. That sense of knowing what should be in a piece of writing or a story and what shouldn't be, that clearly came from your mother. But in the periphery of that description that we just read, you mentioned your father sitting in front of the TV after dinner while the rest of you had group therapy at the kitchen table. Your father, Lou, is a focal point of this new book of yours, but you've long been writing about him. You recently said, the war that my father and I started when I was young has been the driving force of my life. How did it drive your life as a child and then as a teenager? Um, You know, I think when you're a kid and you have a parent like that, you just desperately want them to like you. And so you try this and you try this and you try this. And then it becomes clear after a while that it doesn't matter what you try. Like they just fundamentally don't like you and there's nothing you can do about it. And so that's when I think you kind of become defiant, you know. And I think the way that it shaped me was that I would find myself thinking, I'll show you. But you never show them. You never do. Because they don't understand. Well, my father was an engineer. And until I was in high school, I thought he drove a train. You know, I mean, I didn't understand <laughs> what he did. So really, why should he understand what I do? Mm. I mean, my father, when I started writing for The New Yorker, you know, that's a kind of a thing where you think you would say to a parent, see, I told you. But he's not a New Yorker reader. I mean, one time he called me up and he said uh, a neighbor of his, her daughter had written something, an essay in college, and he promised her that I could get it into the New Yorker. And I said, well, dad, I said, the New Yorker is more of a magazine for writers. Ah, baloney, you're in it. And my mother wasn't a big reader, but I was really close to her. You mentioned those acts of defiance. There's one battle that happens after high school, I believe it's in the late 1970s. At this point, you're in Raleigh at an apartment near the State University where you discover conceptual art and methamphetamines. Either one of these things is dangerous, you write, but in combination, they have the potential to destroy entire civilizations. As part of this month of Sunday's performance art festival, you put on a show that your father is in attendance for. I like how when I read some, from some of this, your eyes sort of go wide and... I oh, know, I, I, can't, I can't stand my old writing, you know? And so I'm just, when you read it out loud, I think, oh, I shouldn't have changed... I, you know, I should change that, I should change that. Destroy entire civilizations, no good? No, it's overwrought. Before we read some of the writing that you don't like, what was this conceptual piece you were putting on? The North Carolina Muse Art Museum invited me to do a performance piece at the museum. And I was 23, 24 years old. And it felt like a big deal because it was the art museum. And they invited me to do it. The thing is, I didn't know what I was doing. I, like, if I'd sat down and said, what do I want to say, right? Then how do I say it? But all I remember thinking was, this is coming up next week. This is coming up. I got to do something next week. And all I really knew about performance art was that you should, like, have no expression on your face and then it was the worst kind of performance art, which I saw in college a lot. Somebody would bring out all their props and then you'd watch it and you'd think, oh, they still haven't done anything with the doll yet. They still got to get to the doll. And that's like 30 minutes into it. Yeah. 
And I remember I, I had a tall rubber boot that I poured like styrofoam pellets out of. There was a styrofoam, there was an inflatable shark, you know, that I was dealing with. Anyway, at some point I had scissors and my dad was, started talking to me from the audience, right? Like, uh, here's, here's what he said. This is from me talk pretty one day. I moved toward the audience and was kneeling in the aisle, the shears to my head when I heard someone say, just take a little off the back and sides. It was my father speaking in a loud voice to the woman seated beside him. Hey, sport, he called. What do you charge for a shave? The audience began to laugh and enjoy themselves. He should probably open a barber shop because he's sure not going to get anywhere in the show business world. It was him again. And once again, the audience laughed. I was spitting tacks, trying my hardest to concentrate, but thinking, doesn't he see the Botticelli hanging on the wall behind me? Has he no idea how to behave in an art museum? This is my work, damn it. This is what I do. And here he's treating it like some kind of a joke. You are a dead man, Lucidaris, and I'll see to that personally. Immediately following the performance, a small crowd gathered around my father, congratulating him on his delivery and comic timing. Including your father was an excellent idea, the curator said, handing me my check. The piece really came together once you loosened up and started making fun of yourself. Not only did my father ask for a cut of the money, but he also started calling with suggestions for future pieces. What if you were to symbolize man's inhumanity to man by heating up a skillet of plastic soldiers? I told him that was the cheesiest idea I had ever heard of in my life and asked him to stop calling me with his empty little propositions. I'm an artist, I yelled. I come up with the ideas. Me, not you. This isn't some party game. It's serious work, and I'd rather stick a gun to my head than listen to any more of your bullshit suggestions. There was a brief pause before he said, the bit with the gun just might work. Let me think about it and get back to you. It's interesting to look back on it because what I was doing was empty. It was bad. But my dad didn't know the difference between good performance art and bad performance art, right? So to him, it was just a way of making it all about himself and ruining, ruining it for me. And then when I, when I got older and I sort of had an actual career, you know, he would still try, but his was a minority opinion at that point. Mm. I think that may be the first time where a father heckles a son and the audience remains on the father's side. Yeah. Well, because what I was doing was so boring, <laughs> right? And a live encounter is always more interesting than what's written on the page, right? That's why if I'm doing a show and something happens in the audience, someone's phone goes off, I would never say anything about their phone because that's 10 times more interesting than what I'm reading, right? I was doing a show in New York and there was something going on in the audience and I'm so glad I didn't say anything like, uh, could you please shut up or something like that? Because it was EMTs coming to take a woman, take her out of the audience. Apparently she had fainted, but sitting down, isn't that just called falling asleep? That's what I would call it. <laughs> that passage in performance, it sits in stark contrast to how you describe your father and happy-go-lucky. Well, I think part of it, too, is that I don't want to be a sad sack, but I feel like in earlier books, I just sort of, maybe because my dad was alive, I just made him seem like this lovable, kind of eccentric dad, you know, when that's really not, that's really not who he was at all. I mean, it was a lot darker than that. That's a good thing when you're a writer and people die. I mean, really, all you have to do is outlive people. It's an endurance game. 
Yeah. Because once they've passed, you feel you can write about them more honestly? Well, there there's things that I wouldn't write about, more of a, like a privacy issue. You know, like things that I found in my dad's house. But I think to be a little bit more honest about treatment, you know, about the way that somebody treated his kids. You know, somebody told me a while ago that they were at a show that I did and that there was a usher working the line, the book signing line. And to everybody who came along, she said, no one should talk about his father the way that man did on that stage. Nobody should talk about his father that way. And it's like, well, people with shitty fathers should. I mean, I don't think you can have a blanket rule like that, that somebody gets to treat you like that and then you can never talk about it. That's bullshit. You write in the new book, as long as my father had power, he used it to hurt me. In my youth, I just took it. Then I started to write about it, to actually profit from it. The money was a comfort, but better yet was the roar of live audiences as they laughed at how petty and arrogant he was. Yeah. I mean, there were other people in my family who didn't have that outlet, right? They never moved on to that second phase of it, of which was profiting from it. I don't know. I always divided the world into two groups. People who pay somebody to listen to their problems and people who get paid to talk about their problems. And you're in the latter. I'm in the latter, yeah. No therapy for you? No, I've never been. Well, no, I went years and years and years ago. Gosh, like, I don't know. 35, 37 years ago, I was in a relationship with somebody and the relationship was breaking up. So we were each going to go to a counselor and then go together. And so I went and talked to this counselor like, I don't know, it didn't work and it wasn't going to work because I didn't want to be boring. And so I went in there and I'd work on my stories before I went. So I'm just doing the little David show. And when you think about it in, in retrospect, I mean, the therapist must be sitting there thinking like, you know, I guess the show will end eventually, you know, maybe it takes a year for this person to just stop trying to entertain me. But, and if the other person's, you know, paying you good money, you're probably in no hurry to end that face of it. When you talk about writing in this way, at least when it comes to your father, do you see writing as a form of retribution? No, it's not that. And it's also not cathartic for me. Which is what people always say. Right. But people often imagine that any kind of writing is cathartic. But I wouldn't exactly use that word. I mean, when that passage you just read, I thought, well, you're up on stage and you're hearing people laugh about this stuff that was so painful to you. And you're going to, you know, you're going to get a check at the end of the night. I mean, that sounds pretty cathartic to me. And there's something about discovering something in writing it's interesting when you're writing about what happened to you because where do you finish it, right? Where does where does the essay begin and where does it end? But every now and then you write something that surprises you. And that line, as long as my father had power, he used it to hurt me. That was like, ouch, that's, that's really true. And I would never have, um, I don't know, it just came to me because I was at my desk and because I was at my desk for that length of time and I've been working on that essay and it just wasn't quite there yet. And I thought, well, you know, I think I have to dig a little bit deeper here. And then that line came to me and I thought, wow, that's it. But at the same time, it wasn't cathartic, if that makes any sense. It almost seemed like you were about to say, that's not something I would ever say aloud, but it was something that you would say on the page. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't have said it out loud. I, it's hard for me to imagine the 
conversation. Where that comes up. Yeah. But when I say as long as he had power, I suppose, I mean, it was a change when all of a sudden he didn't have it anymore. That's when our relationship changed because I didn't, you know, I didn't need him for anything. Just before I went to college, my dad said, I'm not paying for you to go to college. And I had my ticket and everything. I'd been accepted. I was supposed to go to college. Was this to the Art Institute of Chicago? Yeah. So uh, I went to school and I threw myself on the mercy of the school and I got loans and grants. But I was working and I had to get a job, right? So I had this was working for this guy and he went bankrupt and he owed me a lot of money and I needed that money. And then I called my dad and I said, look, can you help me out? And he said, you're talking to the wrong person. And he hung up the phone on me. And I think everything was different from that point because I thought, okay, there's no point playing the game anymore and thinking, well, if I do this and this and this, you know, then that's a reward for it. That was the beginning of him not having any power over me because there's no point sucking up to him. It wasn't going to get me anything. But that time in college in Chicago in 1984, that's also the beginning of when you start to find your voice, right? Yeah. I started writing when I was 20. I wrote every day, but I was writing in a diary. And then when I went to the Art Institute, I took like a short story class. Mm -hmm. And that's when my writing, when I kind of organized it, it was more than just completely private for me writing in my diary about what was going on, you know, in my life. How did your writing and performing differ from your classmates' work? Well, it was different because I went for painting and sculpture. And they didn't have writing majors, but you had to take a certain number of English classes. So a creative writing class was a way to get an English credit. But I was the only one who really read, you know, I mean, you can't write without reading. So when I started writing, I also started reading and reading more critically and reading, you know how it is. One book leads to another, you know, you look at who blurbed the book you just finished and then you think, I might like that person. And then you read but I knew what the inside of a book was supposed to look like. I think that was the difference between me and my fellow classmates is that they didn't really know what the inside of a book looked like. They didn't read short stories. And through no fault of their own, they could paint circles around me, right? They could sculpt 10 times better than me. So it wasn't a question of that. I, I still had complete respect for them. This is just something that mattered to me and it didn't matter to them. You know, I learned a lot when I lived in Chicago. I I read something out loud in class one day, and somebody said, oh, I'm having a get-together, like a happening at my loft this weekend. Why don't you come and read something? People are going to be doing different things. So I read something, and then someone said, oh, you know what? I'm having a, kind of a similar thing three weeks from now. And then I would write something new, and I would do that. So I went to a lot of readings, right, where I was a lot of people on the bill and you sit in the audience and you listen to somebody and you think, why did I stop listening? And you'd think, oh, it's because it's all about feelings. There's no dialogue. Nobody has a name. Nothing's at stake. They've never looked up from the page. They've never changed their tone of voice. You could learn so much from a good piece of writing. But you learn just as much from a bad piece of writing. I remember this woman had a variety show in um, in Chicago, Bridget Murphy, and she would have different people doing different things, right? And I remember the first time I took part in it, she said, you've got, I, be, I don't remember if she said like seven minutes or 10 minutes. Yes, this is in 1988. 
part of, I believe, a variety program called Millie's Orchid Show. Yeah, Millie's Orchid Show. And I said, well, my my piece is 20 minutes. You know, I'm going to need 20 minutes for mine. And she said, no. It was a, such an important lesson is to stick to the time. Because that was another thing I would notice when I was living in Chicago, when I would do shows. There was an agreed upon time, and then the first person would get up there and read for half an hour, 40 minutes, and they're just kind of ruining, you know, they're just kind of ex- exhausting the audience before you've even had your shot in front of the microphone. So I was in San Diego last night and I met this young man and he's a college student and he is a creative writing major. And I don't know, there was something about him and I really liked him and it was just something. And I said, uh, I said, I'm coming back here next year and I want you to open for me. You have seven minutes to read something. Here's my email address and write to me and we'll you know, be in touch a few weeks before the show. Really, the only thing that he could do that would make make it a flop, really, would be if he disregarded the seven minutes. And then he thought, well, I'm going to need like a half an hour. That's really the only thing that he could do. Because seven minutes, the audience, if I get out there and I say, look, this is this kid and he's, this is what he wants to do with his life, the whole audience is going to be like, yeah, let's support this person and bring him on. And they're all behind me in this, right? But don't fuck us over by reading for more than seven minutes Mm -hmm. because that's not cool. (laughs) That kid's going to have just a year of anxiety preparing for this show. Well, you know, but what happened lately is now I get people writing to me and say, I want to open for you. And this is like, no, it doesn't work that way. The way it works is that I meet these people through real life and that's how it happens. It's not anything that can be applied for. It's not anything that can be, it's not about you promoting yourself. It's just about a chance encounter and me having a feeling about somebody. And that's what makes it so nice, I think. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data 
can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. That way of being there for someone, it's something your father did not offer growing up and as you evolved as a writer. Your mom, on the other hand, although, as you've admitted, she didn't read a whole lot, did seem to support you. Years later, after you graduate from the Art Institute and continue writing, I believe your mother passes away November 13th of 1991. Mm -hmm. Throughout this talk, you've credited her with some of your wit, your writing ability, in fact, you wrote once, her specialty was the real-life story, perfected and condensed. And as a tribute to her, I, I thought we'd read from a real-life story of yours from the chapter, 
Why aren't you laughing in Calypso? I was living in New York, still broke and unpublished, when my mother died. Aside from the occasional Sidney Sheldon novel, she wasn't a reader, so she didn't understand the world I was fluttering around the edges of. If she thought it was hopeless or that I was wasting my time writing, she never said as much. My father, on the other hand, was more than happy to predict the dismal future. Perhaps it was despite him that she supported us in our far-fetched endeavors, art school for me and Gretchen, Amy at Second City. Just when we needed money, at the moment before we had to ask for it, checks would arrive. A little something to see you through, the accompanying notes would read. Love, your old mother. Was she sober in those moments, I wondered, signing my name and yet another sheet of paper? Was it with a clear mind that she believed in us, or was it just the booze talking? The times I miss her most are when I see something she might have liked, a piece of jewelry or a painting, the view of a white sand beach off a balcony, palm trees. How I'd have loved to spoil her with beautiful things. On one of her last birthdays, I gave her a wasp's nest that I'd found in the woods. It was all I could afford, a nursery that bugs made and left behind. I'll get you something better later, I promised. Of course you will, she said, reaching for her glass. And whatever it is, I'm sure I'm going to love it. One of the things here that I notice is, because you have fact checkers, you know, at the New Yorker, and what I'd had on one of her last birthdays, they gave her a wasp nest that I found in the woods. It was all I could afford, a nursery that bees made. And then they're like, no, wasps aren't bees. They're insects. And so I hated changing that, a nursery that bugs made. Why can't I say bee? Anyway, <laughs> that's what I got from what I just read, is how much it hurt to replace a bee with bug. I think that's what sticks out to me, <laughs> is that you would notice a New Yorker style guide issue or a fact-checking problem. Well, you know, the things that I read earlier or that you were reading from earlier books, all I see there is somebody trying desperately to get a laugh. I don't know. You didn't want to be seen trying to get a laugh. I think my writing has changed in that regard. Like, I'm more confident now. When you read from the earlier things, they're like cartoon figures. Like, it doesn't feel real to me. Like, my dad in the audience at the performance at the... And I remember that clearly, and I remember him calling things out. That essay doesn't capture what I felt at the time. It, you know, it just makes it seem like, you know, my dad was so funny, he just couldn't contain himself. And that's not what that was about at all. So, and I don't know if it's because my father was still alive, and I didn't want him to know that he'd gotten to me. I mean, that's it a lot of the time. It's like you don't want people to know. If you let people know what it is that hurts you, then you're handing them a weapon. With certain people, you know, you never let them know because you don't want them to have that knowledge. If you let people know what hurts you, isn't it possible that they may not weaponize those things against you, but it may, they may actually understand you better? That never occurs to me. That's never occurred to you? No. In those diary books that I put together, that's one thing that I edited out. Like, I don't want people to know who hurt me because I don't want to give those people that power. Since we're talking about a page that didn't have a whole lot of laughs on it, there aren't many jokes on that page. And I did wonder about your mother. Do you remember the last thing you saw and thought, oh, she would have liked that? Uh, where was I? I was somewhere 
on my tour that I went on in the autumn of 2021. And I saw somewhere or other a piece of jewelry that she would have liked, that it would have been fun to pick up for her. If my mother was alive, she would travel with me. You know, not maybe not to every city, but I was in a theater in Brooklyn the other night, right? And it sat 3,000 people. And I would have had my mom introduce me, and she would have been really good at it. She would have felt 3,000 people laughing, and it would have felt really good to her. And she wouldn't waste it. You know, she'd introduce me, and then she'd learn from it. And then the next night, it would be better. And the next night, it would be better. But she really deserved attention. And I feel like my job as a writer is, one of my jobs as a writer is to get my mother the attention that she deserved and to have everybody love her. Um, They can't love her as much as I could, but I mean, to have everybody love her and to know who she was and to, to remember her. I was so completely fortunate to have my mother as a mother. I was crazy about her. How do you think she would have introduced you? Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to say exactly. That's a weird thing about when somebody dies like that is that as the years pass, it becomes harder to recall their face and harder to recall their voice. I mean, I think it's a little bit different now when everybody's on camera all the time, right? There was a home movie shot of my mother like in 1968. She's on the screen for... I don't know, four seconds, but that's it. She didn't like having her picture taken, so there weren't even that many pictures. I have no recording of her voice. But luckily, I've been keeping a diary forever. And, you know, there'd be some quote from my mother or some description of her or a time that she just dropped by the house with some groceries. Or At least I have that. I'm thinking about the way you described her passing versus how you describe your father's passing in this new book. In his final days, he seemed to have this transformation. What happened? Well, he was living in an assisted living place, and he was 98 years old. And he developed dementia and kind of forgot that he was an asshole. And he just became this sort of benign, cheerful little gnome, you know, who said things like, the kids I roller skate with, they came by to see me. You know, asking if anyone had seen his mother. Right? He never complained. Everything delighted him. He knew who we were. Another change was that, that television was complicated at the assisted living facility. So he normally had Fox News on all the time or Rush Limbaugh, but he didn't know how to work the TV. So for the first time in years, he wasn't marinating in anger all day. So he really had no idea what was going on in the outside world. Because if I had seen him 10 years earlier, it would have been, you know, some comment about Obama and about how stupid I was to have voted for Obama, you know, how gay marriage is a horrible idea and, well, basically just how I don't know what I'm talking about, right? He's never read a book in his life, but all he knows is he knows more than me. It doesn't endear someone to you. So I was really glad that the last time I saw him, he was just this little, cheerful, shriveled imp. Why don't we look at a passage from the titular chapter of your book? Nice use of titular, by the way. Thank you. First time you complimented me today. Well, have you complimented me today? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I guess I'm going to have to do so by the end of this episode. Uh, this is David Sedaris reading from his new book, Happy Go Lucky. I can't remember my mother's last words to me. They were delivered over the phone at the end of a casual conversation. See you, she might have said, or I'll call back in a few days. And in the thoughtless way, you respond when you think you have forever with the person on the other end of the line. I likely said, okay. My father's last words to me, spoken in the too hot, too bright dining room at his assisted living facility three days before his 98th birthday are, don't go yet. Don't leave. My last words to him, and I think they are as telling as his, given all we've been through, are, we need to get to the beach before the grocery stores close. They look cold on paper. And when he dies a few weeks later, and I realize they are the last words I said to him, I will think, maybe I can warm them up on stage when I read this part out loud. For rather than thinking of his death, I will be thinking of the story of his death. So much so that after his funeral, Amy will ask, did I see you taking notes during the service? There'll be no surprise in her voice. Rather, it would be the way you might playfully scold a squirrel. Did you just jump up from the deck and completely empty that bird feeder? The squirrel in me, it's in our nature, though maybe not forever. For our natures, I have just recently learned from my father, can change. Or maybe they're simply revealed. And the dear, cheerful man I saw that afternoon at Springmore was there all along, smothered in layers of rage and impatience that burned away as he blazed into the home stretch. For the moment, though, leaving the dining room in the company of Hugh and Amy, I'm thinking that we'll have to do this again and soon. Fly to Raleigh, see Dad. Maybe have a picnic in his room. I'll talk Gretchen into coming. Lisa will be there, too, and our brother Paul, all of us together. And laughing so loudly, we'll be asked by some aide to close the door. Because really, isn't that what we're known for? We could end the conversation there on that happy note. You could have even ended the book there on that happy note. And yet you didn't. Why is that? Well, you know, I thought about ending the book there. That was going to be the end of the book. But then there was a funeral. And one of the lines in the funeral essay was, you know, people came up during the service and they kept saying, you know, I know you're going to miss him terribly. And I, and I said, you know, I think I'll miss him. I didn't say that to them, but I wrote in the book, I think I'll miss him the way I missed getting colds during the pandemic. And see, that contradicts with that lovely, like, little final image right there. But, you know, people are complicated. And I can understand how people would say, well, wait a minute, you just said, and it's like, yeah, I just said that. Now I'm saying this. It's complicated. There were six kids in my family, and every person in my family had a different father, right? I mean, we all had the same father, but we all had a different father. Like, my dad was crazy about Amy. You know, I don't sit around and talk shit about my father to Amy because she has a soft spot in her heart for my dad. It's a beautiful thing, and I don't want to ruin that. And my brother, Paul, has a completely different relationship with my dad, you know? All I can really talk about is my relationship with him while acknowledging that it was different for other people. And some people can laugh about the cruel things that he would say. I mean, I was always pretty good at laughing about it. And then there are other people who 
were never able to laugh at it and just really hurt them. And it's something that they can't get over. I mean, with my dad, though, if, you know, my, my sister Tiffany, who uh, killed herself in 2013, you know, she needed my dad. She needed his money. And so he just gave her just enough to keep her on the line. So that was a horrible situation to be in, like to be dependent on somebody like that throughout your entire life to be dependent on him because that was the deal. You know, if you're going to depend on him, then he gets to tell you everything you're doing wrong and he needs to tell you what you need to do with your life every single day. Do you think part of the reason he seemed to have this disdain for you is because you didn't need him? I mean, but Amy didn't need my dad either and he didn't take that out on her. All, all the whole time I was growing up, my father said two things to me. Everything you touch turns to crap. And you know what you are? A big, fat zero. He bet everything on me being a failure. He put all his chips on me failing. And when I didn't, then that really drove him crazy. Because what do you know? If you don't know that, right? If you were wrong about that, chances are you could be wrong about everything. And it really really bothered him that I wasn't washing dishes for the rest of my life, that I wasn't calling him and asking for loans, that I wasn't asking him for advice, that I was on my own two feet. As we leave, I want to sit with that squirrel comment in this chapter. You're at the funeral taking notes about the proceedings. Since the 1970s, you've been keeping a daily diary. In fact, before me right now, I see a little notebook with a pen or pencil. It looks like a pencil. It's a pen. Okay, it's a pen. Ink pen. And I wondered, do the events in your life not really exist until you write about them? Yeah. I guess it was just a way of me trying to kind of make sense of the world. Is that if I could write it on paper, then I could just sort of hold it in my hands long enough to try to make, I don't know that making sense of it. Like if I look at, there was this guy who was really angry when I checked into my hotel last night and he was trying to yell at the woman behind the front desk. But for some reason, the music in the front desk, it was like a discotheque. The music was so loud. And the woman behind the front desk was having to yell at everybody, you know, like to, I'm going to need, you have your ID. And so competing with the music. Yeah. And so this guy was yelling like twice as hard at her. And I don't know, it was just interesting to me to be in this room where everyone's having to yell, but this guy's trying to, you know, because he's angry, he's trying to out yell everyone. And I just thought, oh, I don't want to forget this. And I made a little note and I wrote about it in my diary when I got up this morning. What does it say there? Uh, it says, insanely loud, mad guy. But when I woke up this morning, I looked at my diary. I knew what it was referring to. Sometimes I have to look for a while and I think, what did that note, what does that note mean? It'll drive me crazy. Let's see. Uh, I got bit. Oh, so I was in San Diego yesterday and there's this restaurant and these people have brought their dog to a restaurant. I'm not a dog person. And they're on the terrace of the restaurant and their dog is stretched out. It's like a husky, and it's stretched out, and it's blocking everybody's path, right? So this woman comes with her tray of food, and I see it on her face. She just 
freezes up and I just see this look of fear in her eyes. And then these people with the dog turned to her and she said, oh, she said, I just got bit by a dog. So I'm really kind of afraid of them right now. And the person who was in charge of this group said, that's okay. As if she had spilled a little water on the floor or as if she had said, wait a minute, aren't you Barbara? Oh, I thought you were my friend Barbara. No, I'm not Barbara. That's okay. Like, that's not the response to that. That is not the response to that. So I wrote it down in my notebook because, again, it was something that I wanted to, I don't know, I'm not going to remember the show that I did yesterday, but yesterday, San Diego is this kind of strung out guy who was with a woman who was with a pit bull that wasn't on a leash at the 7-Eleven and that dog. And 20 years from now, when I see that in my diary, it'll take me right back and I'll remember it vividly. At the end of your introduction to Theft by Finding Diaries, 1977 to 2002, you have this passage I like. I thought you may want to read. That's the thing with the diary, though. In order to record your life, you sort of need to live it. Not at your desk, but beyond it. Out in the world where it's so beautiful and complex and painful that sometimes you just need to sit down and write about it. I always forget about the introductions, but usually they don't, they don't, you know, there's not dialogue in them. They don't have much movement, right? They're just sort of flat. I didn't think that sounded flat. Well, no, but I mean, I read it. I mean, I tried to breathe a little life into it. Into it. No, but what I'm saying is sometimes I forget about them. Like, and looking at this right here, that's so nice that I thanked my old teacher, Jim McManus and Meryl Vladimir. And not, I never believe in having that page at the end of a book where you thank people. That just gets out of control. But here, I was able to thank them in my introduction. That was a perfect place to do it. And I'm really glad I thanked all these people because they've done so much for me. And I'm so grateful to them. And I forgot that I had put them in a book. That's got to feel good. And my old friend, David Rakoff, who died, that's that's another person, you know, you don't ever want anyone to forget somebody like that. Such a lovely and talented person. Hmm. My old agent. That's kind of nice. That's the one thing that you read. To, well, I read it. You didn't read it. But uh, I mean, you know, things from a long time ago. And this isn't from that long ago. The introduction to theft by finding. It's probably like five years ago or something. But mm-hmm. That was a piece of writing that I looked at, and I thought, oh, that's nice. So that was the second good thing I've done today, after titular. <laughs> well, you know, you did a lot. You know, I got to say, I can't tell you how many interviews that I do. And then you get there for the interview, and they say, so uh, what's your writing like? Or how would you sum up this book? What do you, What do you want readers to take away from this book? And I'm like, I mean, we don't have to talk about writing or we don't have to talk about my books, but I'd rather just not even mention them if if you couldn't bother to prepare better than that. Right. I mean I never say it, but I don't know. I'm really I'm really touched by all the preparation you did. I barely that's really touching to me. Well, the honor was all mine and that line, the one that you don't mind very much. That's the thing with the diary though. In order to record your life, you sort of need to live it, not at your desk, but beyond it. And so I want to thank you for living a life away from the page 
and recording a life on it. Oh, well, thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Oh, and I owe you a compliment. I like your glasses. Oh. David Sedaris, pleasure to meet you. Thanks, Sam. We did it. <laughs> That's our show. Special thanks to Catherine Myers, Maria Dwyer, Claudia Sloan, Kyle Turner, the team at Little Brown, and of course, David Sedaris. You can purchase his latest collection, Happy Go Lucky, wherever you get your books. David is also currently on tour. He's visiting cities all across the country to see if he's playing in a theater near you. Visit davidsedarisbooks.com. We'll include links to all of that and more on our website at talkeasypond.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend our conversations with writers like George Saunders, Margaret Atwood, Jennifer Egan, Ocean Vuong, Roxane Gay, Jhumpa Lahiri, Claudia Rankin, Michael Lewis, and Richard Powers. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the show with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, our show is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Chinik Sobravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Our engineer is Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Illustrations by Trisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Paulina Suarez, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so on.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.